Morning, everyone. So we are starting this series in Ephesians. And um, if you want to get the most out of this series, can I encourage you during the week to read Ephesians for yourself. What we're going to do is each week we're going to split it down under the headings in the NIV. So you'll see little bold headings above each passage. And we'll do week by week, we'll go through those different headings so you kind of know what's coming up on Sunday. Can I ask you to do a couple of things when you do that? So when you read it, um, just read it through, time on your own, space with God as you read it, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about who you are in that passage. So say, who am I? What is my identity? Can you speak to me through this passage? And then second question to ask as you read each section is, what are you calling me to do? Who am I? And what are you calling me to do? to do. And I believe that God is going to speak to us incredibly powerfully through this letter. I feel like it's a significant letter to look at at the stage we're at as a church. And I think it's incredibly important for us as Christians to understand who we are in Christ, but also to know how inextricably linked our identity is to our purpose to live out what we're called to do in him and the vision of St Peter's is to bring heaven to southeast London, which sounds quite grandiose, and maybe you don't know really what that means or how we unpack that. But heaven, really simply put, is the fullness of the presence of God. In Revelation 21, we're told that there's going to be no more tears. We sang about it a second ago. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more pain. The old order of things has passed away, and instead, God says, "Behold, I am making." everything new. How is he doing it? He's flooding creation with his presence. And in the presence of God, there can be no more sickness. There can be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying for the old order has passed away and God makes it new. Similarly, Paul says he brings everything in heaven and on earth in unity again under him. So what is heaven? Heaven is the fullness of the presence of God. So how are we going to bring it as a church? Well, the idea is that when we're in Christ, we are filled to overflowing with his power and presence. So by virtue of being in him, he is in us. And as we go about and doing our normal things Monday to Saturday and we go to work or we see family or we see neighbours and friends or into our workplaces, onto our streets, we are full to overflowing with his presence. So therefore, anyone that comes into contact with us comes into contact with heaven. It's a part of our created identity. It's who we are. We can't help but give them heaven because Christ is in us. And so we're entitling this series Full to Fill. Full to Fill. So we are full of the power and the presence of God, but it's not just for our own benefit. We're full to fill. We come in and we get filled with the presence and the power of God and we go out to fill the whole of Southeast London and beyond with his power and presence. And in that, we bring heaven and earth together. Again, there's two long prayers in the Ephesians that I just want to read as kind of setting up this whole series. And these prayers, I am praying, Hanel's praying, the leadership team, the staff are praying over us as a church. You might want to adopt them yourselves. Grab these two prayers. We've got it up on our mirror in our bedroom. Stick them up around your house. And in the morning, read them and pray them over yourself. Pray them over your family. Pray them over your friends. Pray them over your workplaces. Pray them over your streets. Pray over this church. Because I believe if we start praying these two prayers, we are going to see the fullness of heaven come and we're going to be filled to fill 
elsewhere as we go out. First prayer is actually next week's passage. It says this, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Christ, to be the head over everything. Guess who it's for? For the church, for us, for me, for you. What is the church? The church is the body, Paul says. The body of Christ, how do we define that? The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Full to fill. Do you know how full you are? Are we aware of how full we are of his presence? Second prayer that we're going to pray over our church and ourselves over the next few weeks. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work, not will be at work, is at work among us. Do you know how full you are? Because if we can start to glimpse and understand and have the eyes of our heart enlightened to realise how full we are, we will realise that as we go out, we are overflowing with his fullness into everything that we do. That is how heaven is going to come to South East London. That is how the church is going to bring heaven across the globe. It's going to be like streams of living water to carry on the revelation analogy and it's going to flood the earth with his presence. And in it, heaven and earth are going to become one and the same place full to fill identity purpose do you know who you are do you know what you're called to do read Ephesians ask God who am I what am I called to do go through it as you go you'll get there before we get there in the series and then all that's going to happen is on Sunday we're going to be reinforcing what's God already telling you in the week and then we're going to start to get excited as well in the worship we're going to have beautiful worship times like that where we're going to feel full to overflowing I don't know about you but when I experience that kind of worship I can't help but start to feel like I've just got to get out of the building Like we just got to get out of this place because if we're just enjoying that for our own sake, we turn everything in on ourselves and our church. I want everybody out there to experience that same feeling that we just experienced in worship, that peace and that joy and the fullness of his presence with us. So I had a student leader when I was at uni at UCL and whilst he was our student leader at church, 
he and his wife, they'd just got married, won a holiday. They entered some competition, they won this holiday. And the holiday was in some exotic place, Maldives or Caribbean or something like that. And um, the holiday was amazing. They were incredibly grateful, but the only slight problem with the holiday was it was only breakfast that was included. So amazing accommodation, beautiful beaches, lovely resort, but only breakfast. Lunch and dinner they would have to pay for themselves. And normally that wouldn't be a problem, but for these guys they were incredibly poor at the time. And they were facing the idea of the fact that they had this beautiful holiday, but they couldn't afford lunch or dinner on holiday. And so what they decided to do was they decided they were going to start emptying the shelves of their local Sainsbury's of pot noodles. So every day they went past the Sainsbury's, they go in, they buy a pot noodle, they empty the shelf, and the next day they go in. Why on earth it was only pot noodles? I, well, I think it's light, so it could go in their suitcases. So they go off on this holiday, and their suitcases are packed to the brim full of pot noodles. And so they're on holiday and they're enjoying themselves they're having a lovely time beautiful accommodation lovely resort breakfast unbelievable no doubt they stole a few croissants on the side but then they get to lunch and they'd have to boil a kettle and then they'd fill up a pot noodle and they'd sit there in this beautiful resort just eat it if you tasted a pot noodle it tastes horrific they are awful just eating this pot noodle in the evening beautiful day on the beach just pot noodle day and night. Anyway, last day of their holiday, they decided they were going to treat each other and they were going to have the buffet that was on offer for all-inclusive people, the little armbands. And so they go in, they say, we're going to have the buffet tonight. And they fill themselves to the brim full of all these beautiful, you know, those buffets where the plate's just inappropriately loaded with too many different types of food. And at the end, you feel sick, but you love it and you can't keep going back. You just keep again and again going back. And they have this beautiful meal. And then they wake up in the morning, the last day, and they go to book out because they're going home from their holiday. And he goes up to the front desk and he he says, listen, we just need to pay, um, everything else has been paid for, we just need to pay for that meal that we had last night. And the concierge on the desk looks him in the eye and says, you've been here on full board for the entire 10 days. Can you imagine how gutted he must have felt? Too many of us Christians, I think, are surviving on pot noodles. And we're not filling ourselves with the good stuff that has already been paid for by Christ on the cross. So we need to engage our minds as we read this letter and realize how full of the presence and the inheritance and the riches of the kingdom of God we already are. We don't need to wait for it. We already have it in Christ. So let me get to some of the blessings in this passage and we'll whip through these nice and quickly. We're told in verse three by Paul, in Christ, we are filled with every spiritual blessing. Not just one or two, not just half of them, not 80%, not breakfast, no lunch, no dinner, half board, like no board, full board. We are full to overflowing with every spiritual blessing in Christ. First thing probably say for some of us here is you don't even realise that God wants to bless you, not curse you. I don't know how many of you have this experience of God, but you think that God is some sort of distant father who actually really wants just to condemn you and to point out what's wrong with you and say everything that's going wrong in your life and why it's happening. And we have no idea that really that isn't God's character in the slightest. Instead, he wants to draw close to you and he wants to bless you. He lays his hand upon your head and he blesses you and he speaks well of you. In Adam and Eve, when they're created in the Garden of Eden, what is the first thing that God does? He blesses them. 
When Israel had been taken out of slavery and God has them, what's the first thing that he does? He blesses them. What does Jesus do when he comes down? God in human form, the fullness of God in flesh around us. He doesn't judge, he doesn't condemn, he lays his hand and he reaches out to the unlovable and he blesses. Do you know that God wants to bless you? Are you aware of the fact that God wants to bless you? When you read this Bible, do you realise these blessings are for you? Not for those who have it all together. Not for the special ones, for you. In Christ, we're filled with every spiritual blessing. Let's have a look at some of the blessings. Here's three from the text. First blessing, we are blessed with adoption into sonship. Verse five says this, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In order to realise how significant that is, we have to know what adoption was all about in the days of the people reading this over 2,000 years ago now, because adoption was a significant thing to happen to any person. But in terms of the context of what was happening in Ephesus at the time, it's good for us to know that outside of the city gates, there were foothills in the hills around Ephesus. And there was one particular foothill where people used to take babies that they didn't want because of some sort of blemish or because they couldn't afford to keep the baby or because their family was too large or because it wasn't the right sex that they wanted to be inherit be their heir and their inheritance they used to take this baby outside of the city gates and they would place it in the foothills and they would leave it to die because of exposure or to get eaten by wild animals perfectly normal practice in those days. Infanticide was completely normal. The only people for whom it wasn't normal were the Jewish people and the Christians because they had such a high view of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God that they would go out of the city gates as community on a daily basis and they would pick up the babies that had been abandoned there, left to die, and they would take them into their own family and they would give them a place to make home. And so when the people of Ephesus, the new Christians there, are reading this letter and Paul says, you have been adopted into sonship, into daughtership, they would have said, that is amazing. You mean I was left to die, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I am invited right into the centre of the family of God. Imagine how those babies would have felt as they'd grown up. I wonder if they knew their story. That they were left, considered junk, worthless, insignificant, of no value. And they get welcomed into this family and they grow up and they experience unconditional love. They're told that they're significant. They're told that they bear the image and likeness of the one true God of the creation of all that we see. Can you imagine how they would have felt? The same is true for every single one of us in this room. That we were left to, left to death. We were left to be dead. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he's brought us in, he's adopted us into his family. So here's the question for us. Where do you feel left for dead in your life? Where do you feel left for dead? Do you feel unworthy? Do you feel insignificant? Do you feel unlovable? 
the message from Jesus is you are beyond your imagination. You are so worthy. You are so worthy that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross so as to adopt you into his family. You are so significant that God is going to work out his purposes on earth through you. You are so loved that there is nothing that you can do that's going to make God love you less. There's also nothing that you can do that's going to make God love you more. So you don't have the pressure to perform, but also you don't have the pressure of failure because the whole time you come back to God like a good, loving father, perfect in heaven, and he takes you under his arm and he blesses you and he says, I love you because 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 I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. That is the starting point of our faith. Where do you feel left for dead in your life? Bring it to him. What have you left for dead in your life? What are those areas in your life where you just say, well, I'm just going to have to cope with that for now. It's just a part of the way life is. I'm going to feel insignificant. It's just part of the way things roll out. It's the how things happen. God says, no. You are significant. I've adopted you into the family so that you can become my son, my daughter. Second blessing that we get in this passage, verse 7, says this. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. What does that word redemption mean? Well, the word redemption means that someone has paid the price to release us from prison. So the point is, in the context of what he's talking about there in terms of forgiveness of sin, because of our sin, we have been enslaved. What is sin? Well, sin is anything that we do, whether we know it or not, that creates distance between us and other people, but crucially, creates distance between us and a perfect God. It separates us from him. Really, in reality, sin is a life turned in on itself because when we turn our life in on ourselves, all we think about is me, myself, and I. And as a result, everybody else becomes collateral damage. As a result, also, we distance ourselves from God. So the reason that sin keeps us captive is because when we lead an introspective life like that, the consequences of the life lived and the damage to the relationships that we have, the damage to our own mental health, the damage to our physical health, the damage between our relationship with God is impossible. And the price is too high to pay. And Paul says here, in Christ, we have redemption. What does that mean? He's paid the price to set us free. Because a life turned in on itself just means that we enslave ourselves to each and every other thing that we think is going to bring us significance or think is going to bring us value or we think is going to bring us worth. And then before we even know it, we get deeper, deeper into those things and we realize instead of just enslaving ourselves to something else, we've simply just like redirected that in slavery elsewhere. God is the only person who will die in order to set us free. It's a little bit like this. Um, 
the, imagine there's a woman with a child and she is down on luck. She doesn't have enough food to feel, feed her baby. And so as a result, she's forced to um, start see, stealing formula milk from the supermarket. So she goes to Sainsbury's every day and she has to steal formula milk. She hides it in a bag and she goes out. And then one day she's caught by the security guard going in and slipping formula milk into this bag. And the security guard says, I've got no choice but to report this and takes it to the police station and the police station says we've got no choice but to actually press charges here because you're caught on CCTV. She gets into court and the judge in court looks down on her and says there is no doubt that you are guilty of this crime and so therefore I have no choice but to inflict the highest payment on this crime. But then imagine this. Imagine the judge then steps down from the bench, disrobes himself, takes the robe off, takes the hat off, and then stands next to the mother and delves into his pocket and brings out a wad of cash and says, but I am going to pay the fine on your behalf. That is what Jesus has done on the cross. He is a ransom, and it sets us free from captivity. So what are we keeping ourselves captive in? What cell are we in? And the door is wide open in front of us because of what Jesus has done. Some people hear analogies like that and they say, well, she, it wasn't that bad, was it? She didn't have the money. She's trying to look after a baby. I would have done the same thing. Anybody would have done the same thing in her circumstance. But the thing is, you don't know what I've done, Ben. You don't know how bad I feel. You don't know the shame that I have in my life, the guilt that is weighing me down. You have no idea what I have done to other people that has meant that my whole life feels like I am burdened with shame and with guilt. Well, let me ask you this. Is there any crime that cannot be paid for by dying. We've outlawed death in this country as a payment for crime. Jesus died on the cross so that we can be free from anything that enslaves us. Nothing too big, too bad, too terrible. He's paid it all. Often I think the question people think God is asking them is what have you done what have you done as though god's kind of just trying to judge you he knows it anyway but he just wants you to admit how bad you are when really i think the question that god's asked us is where does it hurt god isn't interested in the surface level stuff this kind of poison that comes out as a result of the deeper problem of putting our trust in anything other than themselves god is way more interested in the root cause of our sin He's way more interested in what's causing the pain underneath. And he says, where does it hurt? How can I help? And what we then start to realize is adoption into sonship or daughtership is the way in and through the redemption so that we can live the lives that we're called to live. Final blessing that we have in this passage, verse 13 and 14, we get a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. It says this, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession. That word deposit 
is some people interpret this as though it's a bit like a marriage. It's like a wedding ring. You get a wedding ring, it's like the promises of something that's about to happen when that's not really what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying it's way more like a deposit. You get some of the inheritance right now to use as you want. And guess what? The inheritance that we get from God is huge. I often say it's not just pie in the sky when you die, it's cake on the plate while you wait, right? So we're not supposed to be just be waiting until we die to get the blessings that are on offer because of God. It's cake on the plate while you wait. Well, let me tell you, the cake is huge, huge. It's the biggest cake you've ever seen. I don't even like cake, but it's massive. It's like three layers of chocolate with every single thing you could ever possibly imagine on it. The cake is, you will not be able to spend it in the years that you have left on this earth. So what are you doing? Why do we live in this poverty mindset the whole time where we think we don't have enough? When we just settle for surviving and we could be thriving because of all that he has given us. So adoption to sonship, redemption through his blood, deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. How do we get these things? Well, eight times in this passage, Paul says, in Christ or in him. In Christ, we have this. In him, we have this. In Jesus, we have this. In Christ, we have this. We are not going to get this unless we are in Christ. Now, the best illustration of what that really means is a bit like a marriage. We are both legally united with Christ, but also we are relationally united with Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, legally, it means that whatever you brought into the marriage then gets shared between the two of you, all right? So when Hanel and I got married, her dad had just bought her a brand new car. So when I got married, I suddenly had access to a brand new car. Imagine that. When we got married, I had significant overdraft debt because of my student loans. And so what did I bring into the marriage? Lots and lots of debt. And guess what? It didn't matter because we shared it together. It's the same with us and Christ. Jesus brings everything to the party. What do you bring? A debt. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. I've already paid it. Paid it on the cross. Have access to my car. Give it a spin. It's key and really important that we read the grace element of this passage. It says here in him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins, verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. What is grace? It's a gift. What do we know about gifts? We don't earn them. You don't get them by working. They're given freely. That's how gifts work. Redemption through his blood. All of the spiritual blessings on offer here are gifts of grace given to us by Jesus because of who he is and because of what he has done. Only he can pay the price for our sin on the cross. He is both uniquely human, but also fully divine, fully human, fully divine. So on the cross, he can become the sin that we separate ourselves from God with. Because he is fully human, he takes it upon himself and he destroys the power of it, but also he is fully divine. So he represents the justice of God because there is a payment that needs to be paid on the cross and he pays the price on the cross so that we can be united with him, both in death, but guess what? Romans 6, also in resurrection. We come alive because of him. We get victory because of him. So how do we become in Christ? If we're told eight times, it's only if we're in Christ. How do we become in Christ? Verse 13 gives us a clue there. It says here, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Message of truth, belief, okay? The word belief there is not just an intellectual assent to some sort of facts, although that is helpful. So if you want to really, if you want to do yourself a favor and become a Christian, then you might do yourself the, the, the honor of actually disputing some of the claims of Christ. Is Jesus God in flesh? Did he rise from the dead as a result? There is, look at the evidence. And I, it's happened to so many people in this room. It's happened to me. It happens to people again and again on the life course. They suddenly realize that this must be true. But it's not just mental ascension to the facts. It's also us stepping out in trust and say, okay, I believe it's true. So in my heart, I choose now, Jesus, to trust you. That's what belief means there. I give my life to you. I put you at the center of my life. How do we get these blessings? We believe and trust in him. So I guess the question for us, if, and one of the things I love about this church is we gather people who wouldn't necessarily say they believe that Jesus is who he says he was, don't really understand why he died on the cross, the whole resurrection thing. In fact, there's people in this church right from the beginning I remember having conversations with who said, well, I don't think the resurrection actually happened. I mean, surely it didn't really happen. It's just a nice thing to think about and really we just need to look at the life of Jesus and, and emulate him in our life. And they've been coming to this church for 30, 40 years. Well, let me tell you, over time, as we start to investigate the claims of Jesus, as we look at the evidence for the resurrection, there is no other alternative other than saying either Jesus was raised from the dead and is who he says he is, or he's a fraud. He's a charlatan and he can't be trusted. And I think sometimes we come to belief in Christ over time. It's almost like you've been hearing me speak about these sorts of things four years ago and you thought that's a load of absolute nonsense but isn't it nice to have some young people in church now and then over the four years you're getting to the place on Sunday where you're listening and you're saying, I think I believe that now. I think that's true. For some of us it takes less time. We come in and we have a worship experience like that and we experience the love of God poured out in our hearts and our minds. And let me tell you, that is the Holy Spirit. That is a taste of what's being promised here in Paul. That seal that can come on our hearts when we give our lives to him. And then we start to investigate the claims of Jesus or even we don't need that much. We can just say, Jesus, I trust you right now and I give my life to you. And in a moment, I'm going to give us an opportunity to do that if we want to. But for those of us in the room who would consider ourselves Christian, by which I mean we've had this change of heart and change of mind as to who Jesus is, what he did on the cross and the power of his resurrection in our life. And so therefore we've stepped out and we've chosen to trust in him and believe in him. Here's the question for us. And I'm asking this myself too. Are you legally married to Jesus, but relationally nowhere? Are you legally married? So you've got the benefits but relationally you're nowhere. We've all had moments like this in our life, either in marriage or with friendships or with family, where we know legally we're part of the family or we're in the marriage or we're friends, but relationally it feels completely distant. And the encouragement this morning as we wait on the spirit in the second is to use this moment to come back into the closeness that is an offer from the person of Jesus who doesn't judge, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't curse. Instead, he looks us in the eye and he says, where does it hurt and how can I heal? 
and he fills us with his presence, full to overflowing. What will it look like if we get this? If this becomes a habit, it becomes a lifestyle in our church and in our own lives, we'll, we'll stop surviving, just surviving, because let's face it, it's felt like three years of surviving, hasn't it? We're just surviving. Thank goodness we have faith. Thank goodness that we have church. Thank goodness we have Jesus, because if we didn't have that, we'd be nowhere. But let's be honest, it feels like we're still surviving. We stop that, and as we wed ourselves to him, um, John talks about being in the vine. As we abide in the vine, we live in the presence of Jesus. We take that Revelation 21 of his presence being with us now, and we bring it into the reality of our lives right now, and we abide in him, and we're as close as hands and feet as near as breathing his spirit fills us we'll stop just surviving and we'll start to thrive because we'll start to realize that these promises aren't for when we die but they're for now and we start to believe who God is and some of those things where we get stuck in addictions and it feels like we can never break free or where we're crippled by anxiety or where there's things going on in our workplace and we say that's just the way it is it's never going to be the right place I'm never going to have purpose or value in my work or in our marriage our relationships in our families that's just how it is it's disunity it's disjointed it's painful it's just the way it's going to be and instead we start to think like someone who is in Christ and we start to just believe that we have this incomparably power power living within us so as to start to see those things change. In fact, it says in that prayer that I read at the beginning, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Have we stopped asking? Have we stopped imagining? As we get filled with his presence, now is the time to start asking and imagining again. But also, it's not just for us, okay? I've alluded to this, but we're blessed to be a blessing. We're full to fill. The whole point is we get filled so that we go on to fill. And there's a church called King's Cross Church that we grafted out of four years ago. And when they first started their church, one of the local police officers came to the church and he was saying to, he happened to be a Christian, he was saying to them, there's this principle in policing called the Lockhart's Principle which every single police person is trained to adhere to. And essentially, the Lockhart's principle is that every contact leaves a trace. Every contact leaves a trace. And the idea is any crime scene can be solved as long as there's a trace, as long as there's a contact, because every contact will leave a trace. And so you just need to look for the contact points, and then you get the trace. And he said to this church that was new and starting up about 10 years ago now, he said, I want you as, as a church to make as many contacts in case as possible so that the trace of God can be undeniable in your midst. Full to overflowing. St. Peter's, every contact we make in South East London, every contact we make in our workplaces, every contact we have with our neighbours in our families, every contact leaves a trace of the presence of God and as we get full to overflowing it leaves more than a trace as the rivers start to build and the streams converge into this beautiful picture of the presence of God flooding the earth that is what's going to happen let's stand and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us and fill us